Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Everything Else, the FT's culture podcast. I'm Grizz and I'm a commissioning editor here on the Arts Desk in London. And I'm Al, the food and drink editor. Every fortnight we'll be bringing you interviews and discussions that tap into the cultural zeitgeists across the world. We're going to meet some of the brightest stars in this firmament and hopefully introduce you to one or two new names. From across the globe, we'll be hearing from writers, comedians, actors, artists, chefs, even cricketers. As well as some of our own correspondents in London, New York and beyond. Coming up on today's episode, Richard E. Grant talks to Al about acting, the Oscars and Al's sex life. You can meet people and you can know whether they're shaggers or they've not shagged or they're looking for a shag. I think that profoundly affects almost everything about a human being. And we'll be joined by FT writer Joe Ellison to talk about Netflix's global dominance. Is it a good thing for TV and for culture as a whole? You know, they witter on about original content as though it's like the second coming and the golden age, and it's like bollocks. So, Al, here we are, back in the studio. New year, new series, same old studio. (laughs) How are you? I'm very well. I've spent January avoiding certain things like veganuary and dry January, the two most miserable words in food and drink. And instead, I've been watching films starring Richard E. Grant. But that sounds a much nicer way to pass a miserable month. Indeed, it's been extremely joyful. My way of spending the least joyful month has been to go on holiday. That sounds very wise. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, it's you know, any month it's a good option, but January particularly. Anyway, we're not here to talk about uh, my holiday. We are, in fact, here to talk about Richard E. Grant, because he has a new film out, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, co-starring Melissa McCarthy, which we saw together. Indeed, and it's a great film. It's the true story of the literary forger Lee Israel, played by Melissa McCarthy, and Richard E. Grant plays her partner in crime, and he's been nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars. Going through. Last time I saw you, thank you, we were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? Slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with um, Julia Steinberg. Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused there too. No, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. So, Al, as well as being in this brilliant new film, Richard E. Grant is someone who you've always wanted to meet, I think. What I want to know is why. I first encountered Richard E. Grant in about 1995, watching Withnell and I, um, which subsequently has sort of cast a shadow over my life. It's the story of an out-of-work actor 
set um, in 1969. We've got to get some boobs. It's the only solution to this intense cold. Something's got to be done. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor reduced to the states of a bum. I mean, look at us. Well, and before becoming the FT's food and drink editor, listeners might be surprised to know that I trained to become an actor. The fact that you mention it on every episode means they I mean, may not be surprised. Anyway, and during my first term at drama school, a friend came up to me and said that he'd spent his whole university life trying to be Withnell. And now he'd met me, he'd met the real Withnell. This was meant as a compliment, and I took it very much as a compliment. It's obviously not a compliment. <laughs> Withnell is an angry, alcoholic, <laughs> sexless failure. Um, and yet, he's, his charisma, his wit, his bravura, is, there's, there's a defiance to him um, in the face of uh, failure and, um, well, his pennilessness uh, that is heroic, I think. So um, you were deeply flattered? At the time. <laughs> now I think if anyone thinks I'm with Noel, I think that's um, seriously worrying. So what's, what's Richard E. Grant been up to since then? With Noel and I was his debut, um, and it's been downhill ever since. No, it hasn't. It, it, it perhaps has been downhill insofar as you can't go uphill okay. after With Noel. <laughs> um, but he's been in everything from Gosford Park to Spice World. He do, he's done other things as well. He's done a crazy series of documentaries about hotels where he uh, would go around the world jumping on the beds and licking the plates of hotels. <laughs> I spent last night watching a documentary that he narrates about wildebeest, and it's beautifully shot, and it's beautifully narrated by him in this sort of tremulous, actorly voice that he has. All the filming is really just seeing these wildebeests getting killed very, very slowly, by terrifying predators. It's a really, really disturbing <laughs> thing to watch. But you know, the point is that he's been in an awful lot of films covering all kinds of genre. So before you met him, did you think you'd get on? I was a little bit worried. Mm. Not just because you shouldn't meet your heroes, in case somehow Richard E. Grant didn't turn out to be just an older withnal. I actually knew he wouldn't be like that because he's allergic to alcohol. He's barely touched a drop in his life, I believe. But also, it was at a press junket, which is basically a sort of torrid affair full of journalists and PRs and one very harassed star who's having to cope with this all day. Um, and they tend to be extremely uncomfortable affairs. So tell me, I'm dying to know, how was the interview? Well, one wintry evening, I travelled to central London to the Soho Hotel... It was late, it was, it was freezing outside. You know, the Soho Hotel was bright and chic and I, I went through the lobby. Through the hotel's swanky bar. Went up this lift. We met by his PAs, it was all very quiet. There was a bit of a wait. And then led into the suite where Richard E. Grant was waiting. The lights were sort of dim. Hey, Richard. And it was quite romantic. <laughs> um, and he was sort of sitting in this sort of actorly way on the sofa. My hero. Looking sort of intense and, well, exactly like Richard E. Grant. You can see all that. He's got that amazing hair. <laughs> um, anyway, he was sitting there 
looking intense. And I was sort of feeling a little bit awkward. But very quickly, he was so charming and friendly that this potentially awkward and disappointing encounter became unexpectedly intimate. Um, great shoes. Thank you. I actually always buy the same shoes from Clark's. <laughs> I, just, I just have one, and then I just wear them into the ground. That's it. Um, Richard E. Grant, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. When we organised the interview, you were the great Richard E. Grant. Now, <laughs> you are... Such the, a tart. The great Richard E. Grant with an Oscar nomination. I know. That I never thought were words that I would hear in the same sentence in my life. So I'm very grateful to hear them. So eloquently put by you. Thank you. But why didn't you think this would happen? Because I've been, you know, essentially a character journeyman actor, as they call it, for almost four decades. So I've never been nominated or awarded things. And when it doesn't happen to you and it happens to a very small, elite number of people, you accept that that is how it is because that's the status quo of every actor's life, really, unless you're called Judy Dench or Nicole Kidman or, um, you know, you know the usual suspects where every year the same people seem to be awarded and accoladed. So that it has happened to me all in this great fell swoop for one film performance is so unexpected that I have nothing in my experience to compare it to or to prepare me for it. So, you know, I can't be cynical about it and kind of go, yeah, 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 oh, well, just another day at the office. It's amazing. Yeah, um, astonishing. People say you should never meet your heroes, but I'm unashamed to say that you've been a hero of mine since I started watching Whistler and I in the, oh, the mid-90s. Thank you very, very much. Um, well, it can only be a disappointment from now onwards. Well, not with Can You Ever Forgive Me in any possible way. It's a, it's a fantastic film. Thank you. Um, you play Jack Hawk, yeah. who is palpably American. Palpably American. He was from Portland in Oregon, and he died of age at the age of 47, and he was tall and blonde. And when I said to Mariel Heller when she emailed me, offering me this part six weeks before they started shooting in November 2016, I said, do I play it? Do I dye my hair? Do I have a facelift? And do I play it with an um, Oregonian accent? And she said, no, you don't dye your hair. You do it as you, as the age that you are, which I was 60 at that point, and no American accent. Have you seen this film? I have. I, I, you know, I, I think like most actors, I find the experience of watching work that you've done extremely uncomfortable. I think that you take this to an extreme of not watching. Is this not true that you don't basically watch the films that you are in? Yeah, but, but you, you know, that sounds disingenuous because you're expecting other people to watch them. But um, all the bits that I'm not in, I'm not in all of this film, then I can watch that. But when I come on, all I see is all the things that I should have or could have done to make it better. So uh, unlike being in the theatre where if you have critical feedback, you can then adjust and try and improve what you're doing on a nightly basis, eight performances a week. With a movie or uh, TV, once it's committed, you know, there's, there's no going back. So watching it is extremely uncomfortable. But because of the press nature of, and having to go to premieres and things, I have actually seen the whole film all the way through. So I have done that. How do you prepare for a role like that because it's obviously not you in any possible way yeah. um, but for anyone um, who's watched you like I have it is palpably still Richard E. Grant on the screen in, <laughs> in the best possible way oh okay All right. um, but how, how do you get into a character like that are you, are you a method actor no are you... I'm not a method actor I absolutely follow the script and 
because I was given absolutely extraordinary Spandau Ballet past their sell-by date, 10 years too late on an advanced middle-aged man, threadbare look by Arjun, the costume designer. And then all my interaction was mostly with Melissa McCarthy. That That is such a... Oh God, and it's like a gift that you, you have chemistry with another human being that you hope that you will have in order to play this on-screen friendship. But when it happens in real life simultaneously, that's the bonus that you can't predict or prepare for. So, How you, important you, is that chemistry? Oh, I think it's absolutely vital because it, the, the film really at, at base deals with the vicissitudes of the A to Z of friendship, that you go from the falling in love bit of friendship at the beginning and the loyalty that follows the almost inevitable betrayal and then in this case, the poignancy of their reconciliation her knowing that she is seeking Jack Hock, who I play's permission, to write this memoir about their crime caper together, um, knowing that he is HIV positive and has got weeks to live. So that 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 dealing with the nature of friendship is to me what it's about. And the fact that Melissa and I get on so well and instantaneously did in real life, having only met two hours on a Friday before we started shooting on the following Monday. Um, that's luck as much as anything else and just a shared sensibility. I tell you what it does more than anything is that you feel that if you are seen in the truest sense of that word by another human being and you therefore trust that person, then whatever you are required to do in a scene becomes something that you don't even think about. You don't have to measure yourself. She's not somebody that is intellectualizes anything or there's no game playing or subterfuge or upstaging or any of the things that you can deal with with certainly sociopathic members of my profession, um, of which there are quite a few. So being able to completely trust somebody, you feel like you can you can play your part in the true childlike sense of playing, that you you have no inhibition and you're completely abandoned to the safety of knowing that that person's not going to dump you in it. Playing is, that's the heart of being a good actor, isn't it? Yeah, to be yeah you have to enjoy it. And not to, some not to grow up in some way. Yeah, not to grow up. I think that's, as you can see, I the emotional maturity of about a sort of 17-year-old going on seven for the most time, so... <laughs> um, you you have a an amazing face, Thank and um, and you make great faces um, on screen. You I think you know you can basically judge how good an actor is by how many close ups they're given. You're given an awful lot of close ups in this film. Well, there's some irony because when I had my final assessment by a professor at drama school, you know, a hundred years ago, he said to me. I think, in all honesty, you will make your career as a director because you've shown real talent and promise for that at drama school, but you're never going to make it as an actor because you look too weird. But do you practice <laughs> these faces? I know that Dirk Bogart, someone asked him, did, what did he do all day? And he said, well, I came up with a new face. No, goodness me, that's, that's the last thing that you do. I mean, to look, to, to have your photograph taken or to look in the mirror other than, than when you're checking that they've done the makeup according to what your character is supposed to look like in your hair and you know all that stuff. Uh, no, that is the last thing. I, I think that to try and the, the idea that you could practice something um, would be so self-conscious inducing. And if you so what like do you practice then? In the first place. What do you practice? Uh, you try and inform yourself with as much of what the character that you're playing, what their what their life is like and you know, my first question always, 
what is the sex life of this person? What what turns them on? Because I think that's the base of what everything in life really stems from. I mean, you can you can meet people and you can know whether they've they're shaggers or they've not shagged or they're looking for a shag or just somebody that is comfortable with that aspect of their life. I think that profoundly affects almost everything about a human being. You're looking at me. Well, I'm not going to ask you what you think about whether I'm a shag or not. Um, We've just met. You tell me. (laughs) Are you in love with somebody? Well, my wife, obviously. And how long have you been in love with her? Um, From the moment we met. Okay. And how long have you been together? Nearly 10 years. And you're still in the same bed? Uh, Lately, uh, we've had a a baby that's that's complicated. Okay. Those arrangements. Yeah, no, Um, absolutely. But you'll get beyond that. Believe, trust me, because I've been there. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's very um, reassuring. But you know what I mean. You can you can see, you can feel loneliness in people, and if nobody's had the intimacy of you know that goes with physical and emotional relationship, it it kind of just it jumps off their skin somehow. It seems to me. So that's the question I always ask, and I certainly thought that with Jack Hawk, this character. He's somebody that, um, you know, he's a bit like a Labrador. He will go and shag anybody in sight if he can get a bed, a bonk, or some booze out of them. So that in itself gives you, you know, it gave me the idea that this is somebody who has the gregarious nature to go and lick anybody into submission, as it were, dog-like. How do you see Withnell's love life? Oh, I think that he was so self-obsessed entitled to a completely narcissistic, self-destructive degree that, uh, I don't know whether that's coupled with self-hatred, but I think that he was somebody who was on fire with rage. Uh, apart from anything, Withnall has destroyed a number of my friends' lives because oh they wanted God. to be him. Oh, my God. Because he's Why so do charismatic. Why somebody so selfish and But he's so charismatic and, and he says such funny things. And um, <laughs> he has a magnetic hold over my generation. Um, okay, Gosh. and I wonder how much he has destroyed your life as well. I mean, obviously he's your big, your first great break, right? But there will be people that I've, you know, like I've heard you say, nineteen-year-old Winona Ryder, just quoting the whole film at you endlessly. <laughs> I can could quote the whole film. Um, there on. are everyone must want to talk to you about it. Does it cast too great a shadow? Uh, when you put it like that, it's it, you make it sound as though it is it is a burden. I've never found it to be so because, almost without exception, it has led to and you know I, the, the irony has not escaped me that in playing an out of work actor, it has led to every single part that I've had subsequently. So I owe my career to having got that part and to Daniel Day Lewis for turning it down. Thank God. So. To me, I, I don't see it like that at all. And I'm, what astonishes me is that on a daily basis, on the bus, on the tube or on the street, somebody somewhere will quote a word or a line from it. And the fact that people still feel passionately about albeit a minute cult following of it, uh, have that feeling about this film is extraordinary to me. So I don't see it as a burden. But clearly you do. Oh, completely, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can see that it must be if you play that part and then your subsequent roles are not 
the same character all over again, you might disappoint people of going, oh, shit, why isn't he just, why isn't he still that guy all the time? But, you know, that has not I also trained as an actor, and okay. um, many of my friends are, like me, were out-of-work actors, drinking too much, so maybe that's... Are you still an actor? You mean in my heart am I still an actor? Yeah. Why did you give up, or why did you um, stop? Because I, I didn't get far enough, I think. And why do you think that is? I was very nervous about auditions. Yeah, they're brutal. I hated them, yeah. and I hated not being in control. That's that, you know, that's... That is the one thing that I certainly experienced when I wrote and directed an autobiographical film of my adolescence 14 years ago called Wawa, where for the first and only time as a writer and, and stroke director, you have control over the final, you have the final say on everything. Whereas, it, as you know, as you've just pointed out as an actor, you are completely at the women mercy of everybody else. They can cut and shape and, you know, drop you or fire you or whatever, and you have no control over that. Does that not make actors insecure and paranoid and um yes you're looking at angry all the time not angry all the time no you can't be angry all the time but it certainly makes you insecure is it fun being an actor is it fun yes because when it works out like it has done for the most part in my life then it is so beyond anything that i could have imagined and i wrote a novel 20 years ago and in doing the research for it i met and interviewed um an actor who was only 10 years older than I am now, called Roddy McDowell, who'd been a child star and then ended up being in Planet of the Apes um, franchise, the, the original ones. And he said to me, from now onwards, and especially when you hit your 50s, the roles are going to get smaller, your, your salary will diminish, and your recognizability will fade almost completely. So the fact that I've had this sort of upsurge at the age that I am now, and you know, I'm in the final Star Wars movie that opens at the end of this year, plus having this Oscar nomination for this film, is so <laughs> astonishing to me that I, I really thought that I'd be put out to feel like old Dobbin the Donkey by this point in time, not having all this attention. How was it playing the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi? Obi-Wan Kenobi was my finest hour. I've loved playing Obi-Wan Kenobi, yeah. How do you choose a role? Because, I mean, looking at your CV, it's, it seems like a wonderfully eclectic range from Withnall to um, Jack Hawk to Spice World. It's, a, it's an amazing um, CV. It's, there's no plan. You take, uh, in my circumstance, I've taken what has been the best offer at that moment in time. So, and usually it's because somebody's turned it down or you, you're, you're the fifth choice, but don't worry about who has turned it down. Just grab the opportunity when it comes. One final thing. Yes. Um, you keep a diary. I do, yeah. And you write it every night? Every single day. And Almost every day, yes. Yeah, like how, how much do you put in? Oh, it depends. You know, if it's absolutely nothing's happened or, you know, some cataclysmic disaster hasn't grabbed my attention on the news, it'll be two sentences. Or if it's like what's happened to me in the last two months, it'll be volumes of books of, or the last half an hour or the last half an hour exactly yeah and why exactly. do you keep this diary because it's the only way that i can genuinely try and you know you talk about this thing of control that you don't have as an actor it's a way at the end of the day to go this happened this is who i met this is where i was because there's still you know a little boy from swaziland in me that goes 
you're never going to be allowed into this club of what this show business world is that you've always been long to be a part of. So it's a way of making something that is feel unreal be real because it's written down. Richard E. Grant, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. You see, you can never give up. Why don't you go... How old is your baby? Um, it's 14 months. Oh, so she started walking? Yes, she does walk. Yeah. He has such a great voice. He does. and It's very soothing to listen to. Well, indeed. Um, and by the end, I was so deeply in love with Richard E. Grant. I wanted to book a holiday for us to go on. <laughs> I mean, he seems... Listening to that, he seems like a very genuine, sort of generous soul. Very much so. I mean, at certain points, I wasn't certain which one of us was doing the interview. No. He seemed so sort of kindly interested in... in he seemed genuinely interested in In you. me and all my yeah. problems. And we started to hear there, after the interview was over, and after I'd, I'd finished my questions, we'd used up our allotted time at this junket, and the PA had come into the room to drag us away, um, was that Richard E. Grant then continued to ask me questions, specifically about my son Rufus. There's no reason for a big Oscar-nominated movie star to care at all about some poxy journalist, but I felt that his interest was genuine and I was very touched. I realised when I was listening that I've never asked you head on why you gave up acting and he asked you and he got an honest answer and we've known each other for years and it's not a conversation that we've ever had before. It was too painful, isn't it? No, but there's there's a funny thing where you sort of, you get past a point of asking the questions that are actually the really big, important questions. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that um, Richard, he kind of sort of lulled me into it. I felt like I was lying on the sort of therapist couch and I would have told him anything. Okay, so from from lying on the couch with um, Richard E to lying on the couch watching Netflix. Uh, watching Richard E on Netflix. On Netflix, <laughs> from the big screen to the small screen. We're joined in the studio by Joe Allison, a columnist who has recently written a piece about the great dominance of Netflix. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. So Netflix made something like 700 original TV shows last year, 80 films. There's a question of quality as well as quantity, which we'll get on to. But there is also a question of kind of competition and what something being as giant as Netflix is for the sort of landscape of other media companies, other tech companies, other TV makers. There's a sense that Netflix now is actually... It's in a less dominant position because Disney is getting bigger. Amazon is sort of fighting it out and actually winning in some of these bidding wars for content. Um, Apple is about to launch its own streaming service and it has this amazing sounding new show with Jennifer Anderson and Reese Witherspoon. So there are definitely players who are sort of moving into the same arena and challenging Netflix. Uh, however, you know, it, it is bigger still than all the others. And it's had a kind of five-year advantage in that it's been out there doing it whereas the others are now only catching up so they've got a lot of ground to make up 
That's but, true. Although Disney's been making films for I think like ninety six years, well, and I mean, still I think smaller than the other thing about the Netflix content production and the number of original programs it makes. Like that is all true, but the truth of the matter is that Netflix is a streaming platform for a lot of other content and. As to exactly what people are watching on Netflix is another question entirely. So I think that's where all these new streamers have got the advantage because they're actually going to be taking their content off Netflix and putting it on their own platforms. So it's this kind of idea of Netflix as being this kind of amazing cultural sort of monster that's taking over the world and developing all these new shows. But actually, the value of their content is a tiny proportion of actually what they've got online. I mean, so what's the problem why why do we care that if disney's removing its original content which i think it has already started doing why is everyone so scared of netflix it strikes me that there is this fantastically successful tech company that's creating opportunities for actors and writers and directors and producers and costume designers and in such a way that the world has never seen before this is like the golden age to be a sort of creative in film and tv wow netflix really kind of like gave you the old Give you the old handshake um, answer. There. No, I think I think that this is like you know, you know, in the in the age of building ancient Rome, this would be oh my the equivalent of Goodness you know sake. being an architect or or a sculptor. Though, I, um, when I started off being an actor in the in the sort of two, in the early two thousands, the rep the theatre rep companies had all but died out. There wasn't any of this Netflix finding work no was extremely difficult. I don't think now. I, mean, I think it's a wonderful must be a wonderful time for all of these it's people. Very much yeah, what I think Peter Morgan's work. argument is is that it's never been a better time. Especially if you're a kind of content provider as a writer, um, you, you know, you really are in the kind of golden era because it's the era of the showrunner rather than the director and rather than as the kind of like younger star. So that is definitely something that I think has recalibrated the balance of power and taken it away out of the old Hollywood star system. I think what people are slightly more concerned about is, yes, now, obviously it's golden age and they're throwing money at everything like nothing, like you know, nobody's business. And as one of producer likened it, it's a bit like when Coca-Cola goes into kind of the new world. They go in there, they build their shiny new factory, they kind of promise loads of people employment, they kind of bring them all in. And then as soon as they've got them all, they've closed down any other kind of local competition. They've like wiped it out and then they are capable of pulling the plug and like making us watch Friends for the rest of our lives. So I think that's the... That's, that's just the a paranoid yeah, they, fear, isn't it? Have... What, what evidence do we have that, that they are you know, this beast that eventually just going to infantilise our viewing habits and so that we are just watching repeats of Friends. Like, there's no I mean, they, actual so evidence they're of, already, of that. They're expanding massively and uh, they've still got room for growth in America, but basically the rest of the world is like their target now because that's where there are subscriptions to be had. They're already starting to kind of edge the price of their subscription up, like just a couple of dollars a year. They're also actually, paying less for content. That's definitely dropped apparently by about fifteen percent in the last couple of years. So yeah. So there's evidence that they're that they're doing that they're squeezing. They're, exactly. They the have same. to squeeze. It's been, it's, you know, they got all of these um, old shows on the cheap because they were the first in. They have to raise subscriptions, surely, no? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're now actually paying loads of money to, to keep something like Friends. They've had to pay Warner Brothers $100 million for the next year to actually just have the exclusive rights for Friends. So actually Netflix are having to pay more and more for the streaming rights to these things. They want to make original content because actually that's more economic for them. But um, there is a sense that they're operating a little bit like something like Uber, where they run these huge losses. You get a cheap product, but that's not sustainable I don't think necessarily in the in the medium term there's a huge gap between the amount of money they're spending on content and what they're getting back in subscriptions something like three billion dollars so actually 
there's like this hole that's being plugged by lots of investors, which is great, but they have to keep growing and keep growing and keep growing in order for that to be sustainable. When that's not sustainable, Netflix becomes more expensive for us. The content probably gets worse because they're not spending as much money on it, like Joe was saying. So it's not necessarily like a golden age that's going to carry on forever. I think one of the things that people get worried about is that if you've got one massive company um, in charge of all of this content, and essentially a, a lot of what they do is data-driven, you know, they're following algorithms, that there is a danger that it all becomes a bit homogenous. Do you think that's a problem, Joe? Um, certainly off record, a couple of producers that I spoke to said that they're becoming a lot more receptive to the algorithm than they would perhaps like to discuss in public ordinarily and that there's now a much much smaller window for a show to succeed um on the streaming channel on the especially when it comes to its placement and its promotion so a lot of money will go into the production of a program but then if it doesn't catch pretty quickly within a month the next season will be cancelled and so the kind of the kind of economics of it are are becoming very much more kind of defined I think as the as the channel builds so I think you've got to be successful really quickly and you can be one of those big standout sort of shows which gets the kind of full full web treatment and gets full banner kind of advertising on site and and you know massive promotion but if you're a smaller thing that's had less impact and less penetration within sort of two weeks you're pretty much cast out into exile like there's nowhere that anyone's going to find you and that's a slight problem I think is that the pace at which it moves is getting quicker and quicker and the impact you've got to make and I think ultimately that can be damaging in terms of the quality of the production because it's all about this sort of whiz bang get them in hold their attention and like keep them going because you want to like whack out six seasons and actually the kind of quality of the drama itself and the narrative and the characterization is maybe something that Mm. is becoming less of a you know it's all about driving the momentum of a season through to 12 that's that's very much my personal observation of watching something on Netflix is that they're always just trying to catch you for the next bit and there's much more focus on the first four episodes than there probably is on the last four um I think there's a there's a big question of of quality there's a question mark around quality I mean of the shows that you guys watched last year were there any great Netflix shows I'm not sure that I saw a really great Netflix tv show it's that it used to be kind of synonymous with like the idea of the golden age. I'm not sure now when you talk about a Netflix show, whether like in the cultural conversation it really has that same You've stamp also got of to quality. Look at the number of programs though that they've co-produced with other people, like say The Bodyguard, which mm. was made by the BBC, and which on the BBC got a fairly sort of limited sort of readership, but went absolutely mental when it threw its placement on Netflix, then got to a global audience. The same's true with that End of the Fucking World, which was completely unknown. It's tiny channel on four channel four, yeah. So I think these terrestrial channels have a lot to gain from the co-production. It's whether or not that will continue. But I think most people have sort of grasp the nettle they know that Netflix is kind of the facilitator and they're quite keen to do things with them it's whether or not the arrangement continues to be so favorable I think two things the idea that Netflix should be associated just with quality I think is unfair I mean Channel 4 we might think that but they produce a lot of rubbish Um, the BBC produces a lot of rubbish I think just the, the sheer volume of shows that Netflix puts on the sheer scale of talent that they use will always mean that there are good shows. But do we agree with what Ted Sarandos, 
the chief content officer, he claims that there is no such thing as a Netflix show, that there is no you know, editorial overview, that in fact they're just creating shows in order to fulfil the appetite of their subscribers. I think they've been very um, good at looking beyond the sort of normal constraints of the commissioning process. And from what I've heard from people who've worked and written for them, they're incredibly freeing. They let people do what they want as long as they kind of go in and deliver under budget. But what I would say if looking at Netflix myself, I don't know whether it's just because I'm old, but I think the programming is undoubtedly steered to someone who's probably under 20 years old. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's definitely something that's quite sort of trashy and even quite infantilizing about Netflix. Like you, you go there for sort of rom-coms, for true crime, for documentaries that are that are documentary but like go on for six years but yeah and really they're essentially quite 60 trashy. minutes quite nicely <laughs> but something like the fire festival documentary which was you know like a huge hit a few weeks ago there were some serious questions around that it was made by the same people who were involved in making the promotional video for the festival in the first place it's um it's an interesting thing they're just brilliant at marketing though i mean i think that Fire Documentary is a perfect example of how it's evolved online and through social media. I mean, they're so far ahead in terms of like getting a message out there and like making it a conversation point. And also, I don't think there's any discredit for something that's entertaining and enjoyable that we want to talk about. I think there is something to be worried about, though, which is like Netflix is kind of essentially anti-cinema. Like it makes these great films like Roma. Um, but it's really hard. It was really hard to see Roma at the cinema. Like it wasn't on in very many cinemas. Watching it on a little laptop screen is like quite a depressing experience. Yeah, but does it just really sort of, like, matter? Peer into it. Well, but why does that matter? Is that not is that not the same argument that people would have had at the beginning of the nineteenth century about, about television, about steam trains, and um, wrecking rural England? Yeah. So there's there's definitely some debate around this and like it's not like people aren't going to the cinema anymore they had the cinema had a good and year also last Netflix year has been an incredible host for a lot of films that only got a couple of weeks at the cinema and then have a second life on their streaming network so joe you've got a teenage daughter what's she watching on netflix she's just finished sex education so that came out in january i'm sort of watching it she can't bear the idea that i might be watching <laughs> anyway sex education is one but she just before that had watched skins she watched every single episode of friends she does a lot of series binging and actually most of the stuff she tends to watch seems to be more of the kind of archival things something quite odd actually in our culture now that our children experience the exact same cultural kind of landmarks that that we did at the time because of the internet they can um like she's just discovered the smiths it's really eerie for me i'm finding it very <laughs> strange but i realized through watching netflix through her eyes how juvenile actually the programming really is and so many of the shows that are marketed as adult content sci-fi like things like dark or rain or any of those one word sort of foreign language thrillers <laughs> which she finds completely boring and refuses to watch instantly they're very young actually when you watch them so she's mainly using it as a library. I feel that definitely there's a sense of discovering older things. Okay, so what? why do we care about this? What is actually at stake here? I think what's at stake is the fact that if Netflix accounts for 15% of all bandwidth being used globally at any one time, there's a hell of a lot of us watching one streaming service and that I find slightly unnerving it's sort of disquieting maybe not I'm not terrified and I don't think of this as the sort of new age of the steam age but I do think it's something that we need to be a bit mindful about and what can we do 
just try and switch over every so often. Maybe maybe make that long slushy walk to the cinema would be good. P- pick up a book. Go to the opera. A book. <laughs> pick up a book. You don't even have to leave the house. <laughs> okay. So to sum up, maybe we're all varying degrees slightly creeped out by Netflix, but don't really quite know why or. And maybe because we don't know what Netflix will become. I think that there's just a fear of the unknown, isn't it? Yeah, um, and essentially streaming is quite good because you can watch a whole box set. Like, who doesn't want to do that? And then they can have these, like, you know, complex narrative arcs or whatever because you don't have to... You haven't forgotten what happened because it was a week ago that you saw the last episode. Like, there are there are good things about streaming, I think. I, I do think, though, that the golden age was probably when it launched and they really did hand out the big checks and they brought in really big talent. And then now they are, you know, what's this thing? More growth, more subscribers, more programs, more subscribers, more growth. It's like it's just like more, 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 more. And you cannot sustain the same quality of programming on that on that principle. So I do think it's probably maybe at a tipping point in terms of how good the things are that we're watching. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. That's fine, I joined from my desk on the floor above. (laughs) That's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you on the podcast. If there's someone from the world of culture that you think we should talk to... Or if there's an issue we should discuss, then please get in touch. You can find us on Facebook or email us at everythingelse at ft.com. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We've been Grizz and Al. Everything Else is produced by David Waters. And our music is composed by Fatima.